Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. The Cutting Room is a part of the podcast section of The Art of the Guillotine. Each week, The Cutting Room visits editors in their cutting rooms, where they discuss their experiences and techniques. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Cutting Room. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes by searching The Cutting Room. I'd like to remind our audience to join our email list for weekly updates and the chance to win monthly prizes. Our list of greatest films ever edited has continued to grow and includes now Lawrence of Arabia, Easy Rider, and Citizen Kane. Don't forget, you can go to Art of the Guillotine and submit your choice for the greatest film ever edited, or you can submit it by our email, info at artoftheguillotine.com. Today I'm joined by Dan Liebenthal. Dan is the editor of such films as Elf, The Breakup, and Iron Man, and I'd like to congratulate him on his HPA nomination for his work on Iron Man. One of the things I've noticed is that throughout your films, you constantly go through many genres. Vince Vaughn's Wild West Tour, Iron Man, Elf, all have drastically different styles or approaches. How do you juggle these different styles while staying genuine to the genre? And why do you think you can transition so easily? Okay, good. That's a good question. Uh, you know, it's very purposeful from my end, and I'll tell you, <clears throat> I'll just give you the reason why um, I decided that I wouldn't uh, would be multi-genre, if that's a word, multi-faceted, um, is because I can't. I I started out um, in in the music video field. Actually, I did hundreds and hundreds of them, and um, I was quickly pigeonholed. I was strangely enough the urban guy, and I did every rapper imaginable, and I did you know. The R&B guys, you know, from the, you know, from everyone from Prince to, you know, all these guys. But it was in urban music, which is the nice way of saying, um, you know, African-American music, which was great. I loved it, but I didn't appreciate being looked at as a a one-dimensional thing. Now, because I kind of became, you know, one of the one of the guys in that field, you know, sort of the go to guys. Um, I started working with the Hughes brothers, uh, and, um, you know, they were, they were 19 when I started doing it, you know, cutting for them. And, uh, you know, they ultimately, uh, I had, you know, I had done another feature, but they took me into features for good. And I, I swore I wouldn't get pigeonholed. Um, after I did my first one for them, which was called Dead Presidents, I got offered every, you know, film uh, by a black filmmaker there was, and I said, no, I won't do it. So it was very conscious conscious to uh, move around. Now, how do you shift between genres? Well, I, in my opinion, most of that is, um, is a sort of a, a, a false um, issue in that... Uh, Yes, there are some things you need to know between the genres, but in general, editing is editing. Now, it is true that if I do a comedy, the pacing has to be a little bit different to deliver the kind of rhythm of, uh, of the humor. So, you know, and I always say that's sort of about controlling the pauses and things. So there are there are tricks within the genres and and uh, I keep learning every day, but I would say that that those are sort of at the periphery that the majority of what I do is editing and it, it translates whether I'm doing a documentary 
you know, a comedy, a drama, or, you know, now um, uh, an effects action film. <laughs> you just mentioned that you did music videos early on in your career. Mm -hmm. And in a former interview with hdfilmtools.com, you mentioned that you played keyboards. Yes, yes. How did that experience influence the way you work? Well, it really does. You know, um, uh, music being being a not a very good musician, I would be the first to admit, but loving it, loved loved playing. You know, if I if I had a tape of me, I'd probably cringe, but I loved it. But having you know that, and and I remember I I actually took a lot of dance. I think. I think those things are important. And the other thing I probably didn't mention in that other thing is that I, that, that makes me, um, makes me very suited to be an editor is that as a kid, I was an avid chess player. So if you combine the way the mental thinking of chess, where you kind of th think ahead and you, th you, you, you plan your, your attacks and, um, and then you combine that with the, uh, lessons of rhythm from both music and dance, um, you can, you know, you can make a little career for like I did. <laughs> what are the fundamentals that you bring from picture to picture? Each film is different, but there's something that you bring with you on each one. Um, let's see, the, what I, uh, fundamentals that I take from film to film. Well, I do say that as you become a more and more experienced uh, editor in your craft, you go, I use the sports analogy, your playbook gets bigger. So there, there is truth to that um, I'll borrow from my past learnings. I'll have, aha, you know, I, I, I remember, you know, I almost, sometimes I feel a little cheap, but uh, like in uh, Iron Man, uh, there's this, there's this uh, scene when he's in surgery, um, you know, uh, right after he's captured and he's in this cave. Well, I borrowed my technique that I actually did for a scene in Dead Presidents. And that was, you know, over a decade ago that I did that. But I remembered how I went about it and, in fact, laid the same bed of I, I often cut uh, to music. That was you asked things that I brought from other things. Well, I, I've. Um, in an interesting school of people that will cut to music, even if it's the wrong music, because I find that rhythms in the music help me find the rhythms in the scene. So I'm diverting on your question a little bit, but answering that. So, uh, yeah, I will, I will use, uh, my techniques and, uh, from other films in this and, you know, sort of mix and match and, you know, find other ways, I guess, you know, just, experience just to you know it helps you it it doesn't answer the question but it's a nice shortcut to get to where you're trying to get to okay from that i have two questions um first what editors do you look to for inspiration um yeah you know uh boy not so much anymore i guess i mean it's uh Let's see, but I will look at sequences and, and uh, actually the Hughes taught me this. I remember we were doing uh, this movie from hell and there, there was a lot of uh, horse coach work and they'd get every movie ever with a horse coach to see all the different ways they could do it. And I've, de I've definitely taken a look for specific problems about how other movies have handled uh, something and I keep it in mind, but you know, I do, I do, 
borrow, I mean, like a, a favorite one of mine in terms of a cross cut has always been Amadeus. So I, I'll go back and just refresh myself a little bit. I don't know that I have specific editors that I, you know, look to as the go-to guys because, you know, we get a project and, um, you know, it's you, what you're doing is your, your job as the editor is to make the best of what you have. You, you aren't, uh, you know, shooting it. You're, you're, it's, it's an, it's, it's an attitude. You, you, um, you don't judge your own material. You, you look at it. What can I do with it? How can I make this the best thing? So, for me to look at a, a specific editor is sort of beside the point because he was just doing the same thing, trying to make the best of the material he had. I'm just thinking for inspiration or something unique. Yeah, you know, there. Uh, I sometimes get asked by pro- producers to do, uh, you know, or directors to do gadgety editing, you know, uh, trick stuff. I remember even back in the video days, you'd come up with a trick and I, I had a, a, you know, bag of them and then they would, Oh, that's great. Give us that. And, you know, and I always felt cheap. Like I say, it should, it should really come from the attitude of, um, you know, trying to take the material you have and communicate what you're trying to communicate. And if it, if it amounts to, um, a visible style of editing, you know, you'll look at it. You'll you'll look at uh, the greats, the masters, the, you know, the godfather and the, you know, things like that. Or, you know, how how they pulled off crosscuts, how you go away. But how things directly apply, that's a little bit more obtuse, you know. The other question I have is in the movie Iron Man, the scene in the cave you said was originally 55 minutes but got cut down to 25. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on in that scene. How did you go about cutting it from 55 to 25 minutes? Yeah, yeah, that was very difficult for that. I mean, that was one of those extreme cases. You're you're always narrowing it down. The the you know the initial cuts always too long. It's always you know you're. The what we call the editor's assembly, which is the actual first cut of the film, which is usually turned in a week or so after the the shooting's done, is it's it it's meant to be. Here's everything we have to work with. Here's all the scenes. You know, I'll, I'll generally not jump ahead and start hacking into it unless the director says, "Please don't make me, don't make me go through looking at what I did," which which does happen, but. Uh, um, then, then you go and then you're, you're, you start to look at, you know, first how you're going to tell the story in the efficient way. And then ultimately you get down to issues of pace, how you're going to, to pace something. Now, you know, if you looked at that 55 minutes of uh, Iron Man in the cave on its own, it, it's an interesting movie. It is. It, it, it's an interesting movie. But if you put that 55 minutes in the context of this whole film, it's death. It's, it, you know, it falls flat. Um, in that 55 minutes, the, the whole notion of how he, he comes about figuring, you know, going from despair to using his brain to the actual construction was amazingly intricate and in how he's putting putting the thing together, um, you know, I, I pretty much knew in getting it, I enjoyed making this long version, but I knew there's no way 
that we're going to have that like that when the audience turns on television and watches CSI and watches a, you know, a 30 second montage and, you know, has a criminal, you know, taken. So, so, okay. You know, we, we know we're going to compress it, but we'll first see what it is at this long length. Um, you know, then we'll, we'll see, well, what, what is the bare minimum that, that communicates a particular idea? You know, what, what is, what is the most efficient way? Okay. And it, it may be that you can communicate something that in, in that case, the something that might've been five minutes of that in, in five seconds, you know, because, you know, you get it, you get, it. okay. The audience is, is digesting. They get these ideas. Um, you know, of course, you have a lot of beautiful footage that ends up on the floor. But <laughs> so respecting the audience, because they're so media savvy these days. You're right. You're right. They get, you know, the audience gets it. You know, maybe my parents have a little bit more problem. You know, always... they miss it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's still it's different eras. Yeah, it is. And it, it's a moving thing. And, you know, as I'm getting older, you you do start to wonder, you know, I think I'm on on top of it now, but you 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 uh, you do start to uh, you know wonder when you know all the things like the YouTubes and that and the, and the ways people are getting used to looking at things starts um, you know making you the uh, out of touch old man. <laughs> With Iron Man, you cut that scene from 55 minutes down to 25. While I was on the airplane over here, I watched the film again, and it was cut down even further. How do you go about cutting for so many different media and areas within the world, but maintain that story? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm seldom involved in further, you know, I deliver the, the um, agreed upon film. Uh, actually, I believe my assistants did the airline version, I think. Uh, I had a very big crew on that movie, and there was many things going on at the same time, so... I think uh, I think one of my assistants helped do that one. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's been other things. Yeah, you know, back in the music videos, I would do like an Eminem video, and you know, I got I got to do, do like you know twelve versions for around the world, and you know, it was great financially. <laughs> I know that you and John Favreau have worked together for some time. How did this relationship develop? Uh, he was an actor in a movie I did. In fact, uh, Peter Berg's first movie was called Very Bad Things, and and John was the lead actor. And uh, you know, John had great respect for Pete, and um, so you know, uh, Pete liked me. And so uh, then, at towards the end, you know, oftentimes the director's busy, and I'll have to do the looping of the actor. I'll sit there, and in, in that case. Um, I had to do a bunch of looping with Favreau, so we met. And then, a, then a couple years later, he he called. He asked me to do a pilot, uh, which I said yes, and then no. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm always really uh, you always have to. There's a lot of perceptions, so whenever you take a gig, you have to make sure that it, that you doing it doesn't uh, you know mess with um, you know because you know I'm. You know, as a younger feature editor, I didn't want to, you know, possibly get looked at as somebody who will jump in uh, in, the, in that medium. Anyway, um, so I, I didn't do that one. And then a, a few years later, uh, he 
called me again to um, help uh, create uh, his show Dinner for Five, which I did and, in fact, did the whole first season for him. And um, and then he threw me in. And while you're at it, would you do a polish on my film made? It's like, OK, I did it. And uh, that was sort of my audition for him as well as for the Vince Vaughn camp, which, you know, they're they're sort of tied but different. Um, and so I'm doing a lot of work for him, too. He's progressed quite a bit. How do you think you've progressed as an editor? Um, you know, because I had done a, a lot more before he he even got to sort of square one, I'm, I was already at least 10 pictures in. Um, I had a little more experience, but, the, you know, he's a, you know, he's a brilliant guy. He's sort of a renaissance guy, but, uh, you know, he'd be the first to tell you he doesn't have all the answers. Um, you know, we, we have to suffer through everything like everyone else does. And um, he, he does have an amazing learning curve. He's, he, he, he retains everything he's learned and expands on it. And so it, it just it does keep sort of uh, going. You know, the, if you look from Maid to Elf, it was a, just a massive jump. And then, you know, we did Zathura that I was quite pleased with. It didn't do much at the box office, but I thought we did a, a nice little movie and then it taught him enough lessons to do Iron Man. And and even now that we've done, you know, Iron Man and he's getting ready uh, to do Iron Man 2, which I'll probably do, um, although I have scheduling conflict, um, you know, uh, I, I suspect he's starting at such a high place and, you know, uh, then he can get right down to the chase on that one. Um, there was a lot of learning curve, I got to tell you. Uh, Iron Man wasn't an easy birth. <laughs> Describe what your relationship is like with him. Well, you know, uh, there's there's been a lot of talk about what the editor-director relationship is. And and uh, if it's a successful relationship, it, it usually has this one factor, is that you share the same sensibilities. So that's the notion of who so-and-so is the greatest editor in the world can be beside the point if they don't share the sensibilities of the director, you know, the way you look at it. Well, John and I, we share sensibilities as I did with the Hughes brothers. Those were, I would say those are the, the two, you know, sets that um, I shared just complete, like the way I see it done is the way they see it done. And so it, it, it's you know it's not impossible to do it if if you don't have a complete lineup but then then you're just being directed to where you want to go but it makes it a hell of a lot easier so i you know before he's even sat down to look at what we've got i've gotten it up to a, a fairly high percentile so that he can get through it he still has to be tortured by looking at it the first time and seeing what he shot and what we've got they all you know they're always uh you know ready to to run to the nearest uh, you know bathroom or trash can after but that's every movie and uh um yeah you know with with him now now having worked together so many times there's a obviously a trust and uh and then there's that thing you know that sometimes the director is leading and sometimes the editor is leading and that's just the way it works is that you know we'll go here's here's what he wants here's what we want and then he'll hit a, a part where i you know he's a little bit lost and i and i might have a, a firmer grasp of of where 
where to go. And many instances of that. And, and, and that, that revolves around and around that can, you know, you can have a, that dynamic change and shift dozens of times during the course of one movie. You talk about let around. It's always like a search. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It is this, this journey to, to find what you're really trying to do and say what you're trying to say and then just make it work, you know. Now, you mentioned the comedy Elf, and before this, you cut the comedy Very Bad Things, which is a very dark comedy. Yeah, it's, it's black as night. You either like it or you hate it. That's how I like that movie is there's no middle ground. Well, Elf is a really bright, colorful comedy. Yeah, yeah. Elf was interesting. Um, Elf was funny. You know, John, John, we had gone through that thing where, you know, I, I was helping him with dinner for five and I passed the thing and then... He had someone else start Elf, and I think about uh, four weeks into the shoot, he looked at some scenes and just just freaked out. I mean, because he said, "There's this isn't funny. I mean, this is, you know, I'm toast." <laughs> so he convinced them. Uh, he convinced New Line to you know let me be the editor on that thing, and I came in halfway. And the first thing I discovered was that this movie that they were doing, which they thought they were doing something like Old School or something like that, one of these broad Will Ferrell, I said that this isn't, this is much younger. The tone is wrong. And I think I, within the second day, I understood that it was more, more like a big or something, more like that, that to strip out the cynicism. You know, the girl character was very cynical and there was all this stuff. And so, so we don't need any of that layer. Let's, let's strip it down and keep this sort of innocence. And because uh, in a way, it's, if you look at Elf, it's actually quite perverse anyway. You know, the way he, the what, it, what's happening. So it doesn't, it doesn't need that, you know, that layer of attitude. And I've, I'm, you know, as I grow older, I'm a little bit past that. And very bad things I was very interested in having a lot of attitude in the things and now it's like I I don't need that for the sake of it I'll just you know I'll just sort of you know I, I'm just into streamlined <laughs> storytelling I will admit to something that John of course never lets me forget about Elf at one point I lost complete faith in the third act and I said this whole thing the science of Christmas spirit it doesn't make any sense it doesn't work for me let's cut it all out and so I, try, and I tried it, and of course it didn't work. And, and so then I went back and put my mind to it, and we got that. But John will never let me forget that I cut out his third act. <laughs> you mentioned that the female character is very cynical. How did you cut Will with her? Because I found Will's performance to be very joyous. Mm-hmm. Well, that Will, actually Will is... Other than, I think he did, he did uh, what was it, two years ago, he did another movie where they contained him too. So that was the thing with John is that he, he didn't let Will go to the, most of the time to that sort of Saturday Night Live place. And mostly what that is is that it's not that you can't do anything extreme because Will's doing crazy things like putting pulling gum off the subway <laughs> fence or whatever. Um it's it's more that uh, you you don't let them wink at the camera. And that's, that's when you talk about sharing sensibilities. I have that same one. You don't you just don't do that. You do you 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 play it straight. 
you play it utterly straight and let and let the uh, audience make their conclusions. So now you're you're asking um, how how do you relate those two? Yeah, the two characters. How did you cut them? Well, she's yeah, she the way I hope she comes off for people is that she's serious but intrigued and ultimately accepting. So, um and the difference with the the cynicism was more in terms of she had uh, all sorts of uh, you know comments and things that uh, you know that we just didn't need uh, you know it it didn't help him he he like I said I'm I just hope when people look at that that she's she's them she should be the woman in the audience who's like who is this goofball I I kind of like him you know but. You know, rather than somebody who ever sat in judgment of him in that movie. Did Will do a lot of ad-libbing? Well, he kept it. He did. John, there was some ad-libbing. Um, not, you know, not on, like Downey ad-libbed in Iron Man. But uh, there was, but there was, it was mostly um, an agreed upon thing. And it was very difficult for Will. I mean, Will, Will in that movie, he was very confused because by sort of limiting him and that kind of Saturday Night Live anything goes thing, he uh, he sort of got out of his wheelhouse a little bit, and he he was definitely worried about that movie. And it, it's interesting because I I think to this date it's his most successful one. But he was I know I know that I know that Will was very concerned. I remember screening it for Will the first time and going going outside to get air, and then Will came out and and I was talking to him. And he was he was uh, telling me how hard it was to look at himself, you know, and, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I really felt for him. He's such a nice guy, but he was just like, wow, you know. You said in Iron Man that there was a lot of ad-libbing. How did you go about cutting this? Because every take is slightly different. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> um, when I met Downey, he, the first thing he said to me was like, uh, I like to talk over the other actor. You got a problem with that? <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, no, I, I don't have a problem with that as long as you're not doing it on their close-up in a one camera. In other words, if if the, I'm if, if the camera's aimed at them and it's a close-up and you're not on the camera and you're talking over their line, I have a problem with that. But the great thing about Iron Man was that the the director of photography, uh, Matty Labatique he shot almost every scene with two cameras, one aimed at Downey and, and the other aimed, you know, at the other person or, or whatever else. And usually I, I have to give him credit because usually that's an insanely difficult thing to do because of lighting. It's very hard to light two, two directions at once. And Maddie did it brilliantly, which meant that I, I always could go wherever I needed to go. So... That that and then Downey could get the full due of what he brought. <laughs> what were some of the unique challenges that you faced with this project, since you had a lot of effects and green screen work? Um, <laughs> well, many challenges, but you know, as experienced as I am, I hadn't done that kind of film, um, which you know, of course, everyone reminded me <laughs> constantly. Um, you know, and uh, there were I. It's funny. I'll be on this panel later on this, and it's supposed to be about the virtues of doing effects films. But 
the thing is, is that from where I sit, you got you have to tell a story. You figure out the story first, and then everything services the story. Okay. So Iron Man went in with a, a script that um, that really wasn't completed, and more than that, it, Downey will never do anything mundane. So every, each and every scene, uh, Downey and Favreau would sort of find their way and negotiate through it. So I would be always very curious what scene came in that day. It would never be what I had uh, in my script, and um, which is really cool. It's really cool because then they would do things that weren't at all typical. But the, the hard part of that is that because of that, they didn't necessarily believe that they had succeeded in, in telling a story. So they didn't, no one quite knew how all this thing, all this would sort of fit together and work. And so there's a, there's a thing which every, every time an editor works on anything, you're kind of a, you're part a used car salesman. You really are. You got to sell your cut. Everyone sells their cut. Every editor you'll, you'll meet and talk to. You know, you're going to show your cut to a director or whoever else, and you're always selling it. Here's why my cut is good. Here's here's what this is about. This is what I'm trying to do. You know, um, th- here's what I believe the issues are, and here's how I'm tackling these issues. Well, you know, that's made doubly more doubly uh, more difficult. That's not very good English, but it's made more difficult by the fact that if if they're not sure that they're telling the story because they're in you know recreating the scenes as we go then there's a lot of scratching scratching their head about what movie we're really making so we had an enormous discovery process on iron man to find the film you know um and you know you had things like 55 minute caves because of because of this and and you had you know, you had you had other parts that that worked or didn't, or we had br- some brilliant stuff that got cut out. Um, uh, Bridges had a whole other side thing that was just he was so good, but you know, when you kind of isolated the story you're going to tell, it became a it you know became an albatross. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned that you never read comics as a child. How did this affect you? Because everyone on the film had a comic background. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I told this on there, but, you know, when I went into Marvel for my interview, John said, uh, well, I know him. Ask him whatever you want. I got to go take this call. So they turned to me and they said, uh, um, so are you a big fan of the Marvel product? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I, I'm, I really haven't read comic books, um, but I'm a storyteller. And they said, oh, okay, well, we need that. We need that. But um, I think that Iron Man and, uh, and Dark Knight, I think that both of these films share this and that, you know, maybe it's because guys like me aren't comic books. I, I don't know where all those guys come from. But if you take away the crutch on what you're allowed to do in a comic book movie and you just say, I have to tell a good story like any other movie, then you, then you're forced to live up to those rules. And I think because of that, I mean, it could be arrogant of me to say, but I think those two movies are, have upped it up 
or or at least brought the comic book thing more towards uh, what other mainstream movies do. In Iron Man, you worked with ILM. Do you find that it was challenging to ensure a good story structure, even though you're working with these two departments? That... Uh, you're circling around my issue, aren't you? Which I'm going to probably talk about a bunch in it. I hope I, I hope I don't upset the panel. Okay, here's the thing. The modern, we, we're in this world where we're doing these huge effects movies, and in order to do them, they have to get plenty of lead time because it takes them so long to generate effects. The central problem is we have to turn over scenes before we figure out the story of the movie. I mean, sometimes months before. In fact, when we started the director's cut of Iron Man, the whole first month of it was spent doing turnovers for ILM and the, and the other vendors. But we hadn't figured out the story, what we're telling. So it's putting the cart before the horse here. So then you go and you put those things in motion, and then you go back and you start figuring out your story. It's very difficult. I mean, I found it, I found it excruciating to have to you know, sort of jump in bed before I, you know, knew what I was looking at, you know? <laughs> so, um, I, I think that there isn't a workflow yet for big effects movies. That's, that's, that really is the proper way to do it. And I'm really hoping in the next few years, we can all figure this out. For editing, people say you always cut out the bad stuff, but for Vince Vaughn's Wild West comedy tour, there's so much good stuff. Well, that, 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 you know, I might say that might have been the most difficult film ever because, you know, uh, first of all, kudos to every documentary editor, the most unrewarded thing ever, because first of all, you're the writer. There is no script, you know, unless you're doing an A&E documentary where they have a, <laughs> they actually have a script or something. But most of these hardcore documentaries, you go in, there is no script. Okay. So then they lay, they lay off, you know, hundreds of hours of footage and say, well, what is, what is the story? What is the story? Okay. Well, you know, so then you, you have to sort of spend, you know, uh, you have to spend a lot of time first seeing what you can do, you know, what you can do with it. There's no script. You got to see what you can do with the footage. That movie ultimately it kind of has a, a little bit of an okie doke to the audience because what we found or what I found was that um, you wanted to first show that you're doing this road show and then you kind of do a little shift and say, okay, who are these guys? And to kind of pull that one, you know, it's an interesting little trick on the, you know, on the audience because they're just watching this flow and then all of a sudden you're deep into who these guys are. And it was a very difficult thing to find that, uh, you know, that transition there. And then you, you're right. You have to, again, the same rules of pace and storytelling. It's, it's still documentary. You know, you're still weaving a narrative. And, um, you know, I remember, I think it was the filmmaker, I think it was Chris Marker, who's, a, you know, for film students, they used to study that guy. And I think he said that... Um, in film, it's not important whether it goes somewhere, but it always has to feel like it's going somewhere. And I find that to be so true. You always have to, you know, it's, it's when things start meandering that people start looking at their watches. So, you know, in, 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 
in Vince Vaughn's thing, we, we, you know, we let it go. We, we say, okay, you're on a road film with comedy and crazy guys. And then all of a sudden you find out who they are. And each of these comedians have such unique character traits. How, how do you play them off each other? Uh, well, huh. I don't like the idea that you create tension. That's, that's the realm of reality TV to me. I, I'm totally, that's where I think that what differentiates, I think they do a lot of interesting things in that medium, but I think the trick they do, which is, which I find f really fake is the fake conflict. If the conflict, you know, the conflict should be real and they should be there and they should lead to things. And, and for me, you know, um, I was, I know on that and I know Vince felt the same way. They're so disinterested in, um, making this about petty squabbles. The real conflicts are them and their material or them and trying to be somebody in life or them, you know, trying to make it through 30 days and 30 nights. And those, those are the conflicts I, I was interested in, not the ones that, you know, would be covered on a, on some mundane reality show. There's two scenes that show the depth of John Caparulo's personality. Um, the first is when he's doing a bit about low-income work and someone yells out, fuck yeah, and John hears it as, fuck you. The way the scene plays out is very fascinating because you do a sharp cut to them afterwards and everyone's consoling him and Vince Vaughn's trying to console him. The stress plays out on him and is self-conscious and it tells us a lot about the psyche of a comedian. Did you find this section a challenge to edit? And how did you ensure that both sides of the interaction were understood? Well, you know, uh, beyond dealing with the poor technical aspects of it, it's like, well, that's fascinating. Here's a guy, here's a guy who is so self-conscious, he doesn't even, he hears something wrong and it, it's, it, it spins him off. And boy, what, what a truth on how fragile someone is. And so, okay, then... And then, then they sort of break it down for him in there, um, you know, and Vince gives him advice until they realize that he heard the whole thing wrong and that it's really on him. So, yeah, that, that, that to me, that's real conflict, the conflict he has in, you know, in his own head, uh, you know, about he says, he says in that film, in that scene, he says, you know, why is it that you know, I can be in an audience and, and, you know, I forget what he says, like a couple hundred people are just digging me, but one guy doesn't like me and all I can see is that one guy. And I said, that's a really, that's an amazing confession. You find that to be so freaking true, you know, and that, that sort of what alludes to his, his own insecurities and his own, you know, self, uh, he, he doesn't really quite believe in himself at this point, you know. So, mad talented guy, though, I'll say. The other scene takes place during Hurricane Katrina. When the comedians are asked to hand out tickets for those who have been displaced by the floods. Um, and John says he's busy. He's got plans. And when he's, when he's pushed, he reveals he just wants to go to Best Buy, but gets roped in. And you give a nice hard cut to him and the comedians in the car. And John's sitting in the middle, sulking. Um, was there any concern expressed by the producers, the director, or the comedians about ensuring that they came across as appealing people? 
because they're still trying to f- build a fan base. Yeah, yeah. I, there was a concern. I mean, you know, to be honest, and I, I told Vince when I got on, Vince, I, I don't have any interest in doing a fluff piece. But the flip side is I have zero interest in, in going out of my way to make people look bad or inventing conflict all over the reality TV. So, you know, what that is, though, is that they may they may look selfish and bad but it's they're learning a really valuable lesson and which is which is really uplifting the the, the net result of them having to see other people suffer and and their own little selfishness you know exposed so that's pretty cool I, I like that they, there's another scene but this scene was cut out and when it was at the Toronto International Film Festival there was a sandwich scene in which someone took John sandwich and it was quite a long scene but it got a lot of laughs why was it cut out yeah I I I liked that too I did like it but in you know in trying to both uh get the thing to a more acceptable thing and also I think that what happened was that uh when you're cutting it's like kind of like a domino thing. If you start pulling out pieces here and there, you all of a sudden find that uh, something else that's in there no longer stands on its own. And I remember because we pulled out a whole thing of about the troubles that they were going through at that point because it seemed to fall flat for a little while before that. That then didn't seem like the right note at that point. But I do remember being disappointed that uh, that that didn't no longer worked in the uh, in the you know in the film and finally just to wrap up i just want to ask you what i ask everyone what is your favorite guilty pleasure film oh guilty pleasure film is that like a film i'm not supposed to like and then i like yeah. or one that, you know, oh oh yeah yeah little giants that's a good one because I seem like an idiot by saying that one. It was a little football film where the kids play. I'd like to thank Dan for being so hospitable and allowing me into his editing room. I'd also like to thank the American Cinema Editors and Lauren Woodcock, my producer. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.